Hi, it's Michael Shapiro, and welcome back to the Delacorte Review podcast, where in each episode, we talk with writers about the stories they needed to tell and all the things that went wrong on the way to telling them. Today, I'm going to be talking with Abigail Covington. And the first thing you need to know about Abigail is that she's from the South and did not always love it. So, Abigail, before we begin, I have to, I, um, I should preface what we're going to be talking about today with this. Abigail is from North Carolina originally, well, she lives in New York now, specifically in Charlotte. And the reason I say this is that you cannot escape the centrality of the South in the story that Abigail has written and we're going to be talking about, which is about, well, what is it about? You tell, you tell us. Oh, gosh. What is it about? Um, it is a story about a small college um, that is in Virginia um, that, uh, where Robert E. Lee is buried alongside his horse and his entire family. Um, and the story is about that school, in particular, one man, uh, a professor within that school's attempt to um, deal with their legacy and their relationship with Robert E. Lee in the wake of uh, the Charlottesville um, riots of 2017. Okay. First of all, the name of the school is? Washington and Lee. And it's named for? Robert E. Lee. And before that? George Washington. All right. So you have two... Two august names. Yeah. So, and you said something which is, one takes one aback, which is, in the middle of the campus of Washington and Lee, yep. Washington and Lee is, as you describe it, a chapel. And in this chapel is Robert E. Lee. He's like laid out like a god, sort of like, um, oh, you can't see me, but I'm doing so many things with my hands. Like he looks, uh, he's in, in late, what is it, lying in state? He's in, is it, he is in repose. Repose. Yes. Um, so it's a very odd treatment for a historical figure. And uh, it's sort of a lot of people from the South kind of come to it because it's a, it's, well, it's a national monument, but it's, um, it's sort of become a shrine to the Confederacy is what they call it. Right. A shrine to the Confederacy, or as you put it in the story, there's an, another way to look at this, the term of the lost cause. Right. So in the middle of this in the middle of this campus is this is this chapel. And in the middle of the chapel is Robert E. Lee. And in the middle of the legacy of the world in which you grew up is the lost cause. The lost cause. I think for people from outside the South, people who live in the West, certainly people who live in the North, this idea and I will confess that I find it sort of like baffling. Wait a second, didn't the Civil War end 18, in 1865? In the South, did it? The war ended in 1865, but then a whole new sort of history began. And what they started doing after, what, what Southerners basically started doing in the immediate aftermath of the, the Civil War is constructing their own narrative and their own interpretation of what the war was really about. Um, which, spoiler alert, was uh, quite a, a departure from what we know to be like the, the historical account, um, the reasons for going into the war, um, et cetera. So they sort of had this, they created their own benevolent narrative um, to make themselves feel better, essentially, about the disaster um, of the Civil War and, and the, you know, the gross tragedies that 
occurred throughout the South during it. So what are the key points of that that narrative? I don't want to say alternative or power, but what, is the, what are the key points? Um, number one, Robert E. Lee rules. He's a, he's a god. Um, he's an honorable man who uh, fought for his, you know, basically who responded to the call of duty and fought for his homeland um, of Virginia and, you know, the rest of the South, um, that the Civil War wasn't about slavery. It was about, um, well, states' rights is, is sort of what they, what they exchange um, the, the cause for, or, or I don't know, whatever. Um, and then... Uh, there, and then there's smaller things like, you know, the women of the the women who stayed behind were great caretakers. It just it, it essentially paints this, you know, very um, emotional, uh, you know, oh, look what we look what we've been through. And and we didn't we didn't cause this. This was northern aggression. And oh, thank God for Robert E. Lee, who who answered the call of duty. And, you know, this wasn't about slavery. And actually, another part of it was, you know, a lot of our slaves are happy as as slaves. Like there's actually there's a great relationship between slaves and slave owners in the South here. Look, like it was that was a weird part. Yeah. So things are in reading the story, things are going along kind of just fine Mm -hmm. with, you know, within a broad definition of fine until Charlottesville Mm -hmm. and Charlottesville. Everything begins to change. What changes? Yeah, that was um, that was a big one. Um, for the longest time, all Southerners, myself included, we all grew up um, with this lost cause narrative in our heads. Because the weird thing is, it ended up in textbooks and it ended up in schools, and so you know, we this folklore became fact for us. Um, so, I think what 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 really was the first jarring moment for for some Southerners was to see Robert E. Lee kind of taken over uh, and and by this this group of neo-Nazis or um, what are they called? White what white supremacists. supremacists. Yes. Thank you, Michael. Mm -hmm. White supremacists. Um, I think that for a certain kind of like Southern elite, you know, gentlemen who always you know, identified with Robert E. Lee as this honorable guy. It was very jarring to see um, that them suddenly connected to white supremacists by their love for this this man. And it caused a basically an explosion, you know, and the or an identity crisis really throughout the South, specifically Virginia and North Carolina, and caused a lot of sort of um, people who fancied themselves to be, you know, egalitarian Southerners who you know, love Robert E. Lee, um, to be like, oh, boy. So what happens is Charlottesville happens. Mm -hmm. And as you write in the beginning of the story, the president of Washington E. Lee, Washington Lee, turns on his TV. Mm -hmm. And what does he see? Uh, Oh, he sees, well, he sees all those guys in weird guys in khakis with, like, hair parted on their side and tiki torches and... Um, you know, protesting on this campus, which happened to be his alma mater. The University of Virginia. Yeah, University of Virginia. And, um, you know, he sees all these sort of news alerts about uh, Robert E. Lee being taken up as this cause for neo-Nazis. And then he probably, I wasn't there, but I imagine he might have sort of 
craned his head over to his own campus and looked at Lee Chapel and thought, oh, boy. I got a problem. I got, <laughs> I got a problem. Is there – and so what we're talking about now is the president of Washington and Lee realizing he has a problem, that there is – there's two things happening at once. There is this rise of white supremacy. There is the president's reaction to it, which only makes things worse. Mm-hmm. Good people on both sides, as we're seeing the specter of young men, as you describe them, in khakis, carrying tiki torches and saying things like, Jews will not replace us. Yeah. And there's also this call on the other side for questioning and actually doing away with Civil War memorials and monuments, mm-hmm. right? And he has essentially the biggest Civil War mem- memorial there is, an entire college campus. Mm-hmm. So what does he do? Yeah, it's 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 He feels that he puzzling. has to do something, right? He has to do something. But the other huge part of this story, and I'm sure we'll get into it because it's so fun to talk about, is how wacky these people at WNL are um, about Robert E. Lee. Because Robert E. Lee was the president of the college after the Civil War. And these are like good old boys who love Robert E. Lee and love tradition. So <laughs> this, this poor president, I always picture him in my head. He... Uh, on one side, he's got, you know, a nas- there's a national crisis directly related to uh, what's what his school represents. And on the other side, he has a whole bunch of alumni and community members who, you know, will shake him by the shoulders if, if he does anything to, to, you know, to destroy or to remove Robert E. Lee from the campus. Right. So, so yeah. So <laughs> he's very political. He's very middle road. So he forms a commission. And what's a commission supposed to do? Michael, the commission is meant to examine the legacy of Robert E. Lee on WNL's campus and make recommendations to President Dudley and the Board of Trustees about how they could probably like more responsibly present their Lee narrative in the wake of what happened in Charlottesville to the campus, to the to the community and to the public. And he knows, as you write. That there's one person he really needs on this commission, and yeah. who is that? One guy, uh, one one wonderful one wonderful guy named Ted Delaney, who is a professor of history at the school, um, who I think, as I write in the story, has a relationship with WNL like no other. Um, and do you want me to yeah. tell you about that? Okay, Please. Ted Delaney is uh, a 75 year old. African-American man who's, oh, so kind and so gentle and so nice. And he started, he grew up in the segregated neighborhood um, of Lexington, Virginia, where the school is. Um, He started off as a janitor at Washington and Lee, working there as a janitor, as a teenager, and then as a lab tech in the biology department for 20 years. Um, And then eventually he went to Washington and Lee. He started taking courses, uh, graduated with an undergraduate degree at the... um, cool, hip age of 40, uh, went on and got his Ph.D. and then came back to Washington and Lee to teach um, in his 50s. And, you know, he's one of maybe, I don't know, three black people on campus. That's an exaggeration. I don't want to be fact checked for that. But um, that's a big part of the story. He is he is in this community of white people and has been his whole life. And President Dudley plucked him from the, you know, he said, I need you to be on this commission. And what, when asked, what did Ted Delaney say? Uh, what he's always said, which is, yes, okay, I'll do it. 
And at this point, he's 75 years old and semi-retired, right? He's 74 and on the brink of retirement. It's yeah. it's the, his last year of teaching. And so he's tasked with, with the other members of this commission mm-hmm. with basically what do we do with our Robert A. Lee problem, which mm-hmm. before this, in my understanding, had never really been a problem. Ted Delaney and the commission set to work. Yeah. What happens? Oh, well, they they basically have nine months to make these recommendations to President Dudley. And in order to do so, because they know they're dealing with such a volatile issue, um, they're very they're very determined to get as much community involvement and feedback as possible. So one of the main things they do is um, reach out, have like different working sessions and phone calls with members of the staff, the teachers, the alumni, the current students, um, and then various clubs within the school. So that's their first, you know, step. We're going to collect all of this feedback. We're going to see how everyone feels and everyone had feels. It was a very, uh, you know, it just permeated the campus, this whole like, oh, what's the commission doing? What's the commission doing? I heard they're going to do this. I heard they're going to change the name of the school. Were people nervous? Yeah. Why? Um, because I, I think the, the, the people that were the most nervous were the alumni. The alumni are very conservative and very traditional. At this point, like the students, a lot of the kids there are, are, are there like it's a very conservative campus, but it's like a financially it's mostly kids who just like, you know, college, like want to party and like go work on Wall Street and like don't really, you know, don't like if someone's going to ask them how they feel about Robert E. Lee, they're like they, they're going to be like, I don't I don't know. I think I'm I, I hear the bell ringing like they don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But the alumni are furious. The teachers who are very liberal are very upset and and hope that this is an opportunity to, you know, lurch the school forward into the present. Um, the current students, some of them, the liberal ones, who are a very small but mighty pack, the students of color, of which there's like, it's like 1% of the student body, um, are really like hoping this turns into something. Um, but then like a lot of the like kids and frats and sororities are just like, well, I'm going to get Jamba Juice. So Ted Delaney and his and this commission has nine months to do this. Mm-hmm. And what is he what is the commission beginning to discover in terms of the forces that are arrayed against each other here? You mentioned the alumni. Yeah. So the alumni are pushing to essentially say, don't change anything. Mm-hmm. Who's pushing for change? I mean, is Ted Delaney pushing for change? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, Ted Ted is I think in his in his heart <laughs> is really seeing this. I think he's trying the whole time hard not to get his hopes up while at the same time taking the task really really seriously and doing every seeing this as a moment to help the school, um save the school, help it, you know, make these changes and move forward and hopefully through these changes have a more diverse student body. Well, when you say changes, what do you mean? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not, it's not really changes as much as it is like fixes or like, you know, corrections. Um, Like what do you do, for instance, with Lee Chapel? Was was that ever something that was discussed? Like we have this chapel where he is interred. uh 
And does anybody consider, well, maybe this is not a good thing? Oh, yeah. That's a big part of the commission's work is like looking at this problem that is Lee Chapel being like, what? Okay, this can't we can't have this shrine here anymore. We know from talking to students that it makes them uncomfortable. We know from talking to teachers that it makes them uncomfortable. You know, we know that Robert E. Lee is now basically a hero to the neo-Nazi movement. Like, oh boy. Um, so yes, that was a huge question that they that they basically struggled with the entire time and eventually made a recommendation to the president uh, in terms of what to do with it. I don't want to give too much away because it's such an interesting story, but I want to go back to the doing of it. Mm-hmm. You know about Ted Delaney, Charlottesville happens, mm-hmm. and you hear and you hear about this commission. Yeah. And what do you do next? You get in touch with Ted, right? Yeah, I get, exci- I get excited because I'm like, this sounds... I was excited because I was like, oh, this sounds complicated because I knew the school and I knew, like, the Charlottesville, like, I was, I wanted, I wanted to write a piece about a problem. And this was a big problem. And I understood it because I was from this place. And I, yeah, I emailed Ted Delaney um, and he emails me back, you know, Abigail, comma, I will not speak either on or off the record, some like severe, severe language. So this is just a, a moment for a, a sort of a technical thing. Yeah. There are some writers who go, well, that's the end of that, oh, right? Yeah. You did not do that, did you? No, I didn't do that. I thought about it because I was like, oh, this is going to be hard. And <laughs> I was like, I don't want it to be hard. I want it to be easy. But no, I, you know, there was something in his email, like there was such an obvious willingness, like there was such a clear desire um, for like from him to talk about this. Like he, like he had w- sort of been waiting for someone to be like, hey, isn't this messed up? And like you have a weird history, like what's going on? So he was like, I won't speak on or off the record. And by the way, I was born in 19, blah, blah, blah. And like gave me his whole history and feeling. And I was like, I just kept going. And you wrote back to him and said, what did I say? I said, I understand that you won't speak on or off the record. Um, You know, and then I I just sort of I I said, I'm I'm curious about this, you know, for for my own education and understanding um, and asked him a few questions and. I, he and then he just began to relax. He really wanted to. He really wanted to talk about it. That's actually an important thing. Just sort of speak to the journalistic piece of this. That we often, you know, reach out to people who say no. Right. But you can. There's a final no and a final no. And the final no is you never hear back from them. Yeah. But you keep on hearing back from him, and it's clear that there's something going on here. Yeah. And you, as a skilled journalist, sense this. And so you went. You had several back and forths, and then he finally said, "What?" Um, you know, he said, "I can only. I'll, I, I will talk to you." Um, I, at this point, we had emailed a bunch and been on the phone, and it would have made it very much just about. I just wanted to listen and hear his experience, and he said, "I will. I will talk to you. Please understand, I represent only my views, not those of the commissions." Um, you know, but he but he cracked, and he he wanted to talk about it. He realized. I think there's a big part of Ted that said like. It's my last year at the school. Like, I've done my service. Um, but Ted, you know, Ted opened the Ted opened everything up for me. When you say opened everything up, yeah. Well, you know, if you're a skilled journalist, 
as I am, <laughs> um, you you know that you kind of need. We'll get to the self doubt in a minute. Right. I mean, well, go ahead. <laughs> self doubt. <laughs> um, you you need someone to open things up for you. It takes. That's like Ted. Ted gave me all my other characters. Um, gave me the right books, gave me the research, put me in the right direction. And, and that's like that's what you really hope for when you're putting a story together, that you have you can connect with someone who then can sort of who's the central hub and then can connect you to everything. But you come back and, of course, the story just writes itself, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Michael, Michael, you're so funny. Um, no, it was painful. I think one of the, the hardest things about this story was that it took forever because the commission took forever and then that that was only half of the story what the commission said what the school's reaction to it this was the course of two two years um so you it know, was, in other words it was not a quick resolution on the part of the commission no it wasn't a quick resolution and it took, and i had to wait i had to wait to figure out what they recommended figure out what happened and then like because this school is just constantly like i don't know i don't know why they're more tired like they all just argue with each other all the time it's so exhausting that's how someone put it to me um but so then th- there were so many things that happened after that i really wanted to document that i um that i had to just wait for so because it's, because the reporting of the story went on for such a long time basically the mm-hmm. life of the commission yeah. did you find yourself as you're going through sort of like wishing for an outcome yes the story, without being too specific, ends in disappointment, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, big time. Yeah. <laughs> For Ted? Oh, yes. But again, that was so, oh, so complicated. Um, you know, I went to meet with him this past summer um, at his for his retirement party, and he said, you know, I said, how do you feel? He said, disappointed. But he wasn't like, you know, crying or anything. And I was like, why aren't you angry or why aren't you mad? And he was like, you know, you're talking to a person that's been disappointed all of his life. And I just was like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> what was the hardest thing? Um, th- this is so unique to to me and, and this <laughs> to me. For me, this was also a story that was really close to home. I, I definitely had a sense of duty to tell the story in its in its completion and hope that that, you know, to not to not have it come off as like, look at this super prom- like problematic place that can't get its like head out of its whatever. Um, that was hard because it, it made me nervous. It made me nervous to in, in the reporting and the language I chose to use. Um, that I think was the hardest part. Are you glad you did it? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean I'm super I'm I'm nervous. Now I'm you've made me now I'm nerv- now I'm you've made me nervous when you you've made me nervous again. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Not really. Right. But. Am I glad? Yeah, I'm definitely glad I did it because one I mean and I I would like if this gets to happen to you when you're reporting a story, like what a what a, a experience to cherish. Like I learned so much about my own, like about history. I learned. I mean, I learned. Well, that you learned about your history. My, <laughs> yeah. And I do think, I'm. I do think there's something powerful about getting to tell the story about where you're from. Yeah, for sure. But for me, that story was it was really poignant because there's a lot of 
I'm still so connected to that place. My family is there. Um, but it's a really problematic place. And I think that the that that just made it balancing like how problematic it is with also being from there. I mean, yeah, I think anyone would feel that way about like where they came from. Right. Um, it's that wonderful line in Nor- I'm with this all the time. I think I suspect you've heard it from me too, from Norman McLean in Young Men and Fire. You find mm-hmm. a story to tell you something about your that tells you something about yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely that this was that in spades. Thanks for listening. This has been the Delacorte Review Podcast. Our producer is Katie Ferguson. Our editor is Mike Hoyt, senior editor Sissy Falligant, associate editor Natasha Rodriguez. And we'd be hopeless and helpless without our two wonderful interns, Andrew Wang and Maddie Natelli. Thanks a lot. <laughs>